It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and murder. If you're squeamish or have young years around you, you may want to try another episode. In 1927, Walter H. Leimert began developing a model community of homes in South Los Angeles. He envisioned a neighborhood full of Spanish colonial revival houses that would one day be full of young married couples looking to start new lives together. But when the war broke out, all further development on the neighborhood ceased. And by the late 1940s, several of the vacant lots to the south were now overgrown with weeds. Despite the lack of houses in that part of the development, sidewalks still ran alongside each vacant lot, and it remained a popular area for mothers to take their children. Such was the case on January 15, 1947, when Betty Bersinger loaded her three-year-old daughter Anne into a stroller and took her for a walk on that brisk morning. It was unusually cold. Granted, it was January, but this was still Southern California we're talking about. The weather service had issued hard frost warnings the night before, and around the city you could see black smoke rising from smudge pots set out by farmers to protect their orange groves. Betty and her daughter headed south past the empty lots, in the direction of a local shoe repair shop to pick up a pair of her husband's loafers. It was the flies that caught her attention. As Betty pushed along past the 3800 block of Norton, she noticed a black cloud of the tiny insects hovering over an object in the grass. At first, her eyes couldn't make sense of what it was they were buzzing over. She thought it might be a department store mannequin someone had laid out in the grass, although whoever had done it had broken the mannequin into two pieces. She caught a glimpse of a shock of black hair, but even that was something she was having difficulty wrapping her brain around. She brushed it off as just a simple mannequin and nothing more. Yet even still, something about the entire scene felt off to her. She hurried toward the first house she could find and pushed the buzzer. Only there was no one home. She tried the house next door and a lady opened the door. She asked if she could use the telephone to call the police. By 11.07 that morning, a patrol car was dispatched to check out the scene, which, by then, was still being reported as some unsightly garbage being dumped in a vacant lot. This left the two uniformed patrolmen who arrived on the scene completely unprepared for what they really found. It was no mannequin. It was the nude body of a young woman in her 20s. She had been murdered. And whoever had done it had done terrible, terrible things. The body was severed at the waist and completely drained of blood, causing her skin to turn alabaster white. Medical examiners would estimate she had been dead for around 10 hours prior to her discovery, meaning she had likely been killed sometime during the evening of January 14th, or perhaps the early hours of January 15th. 
The body had been thoroughly scrubbed and cleaned by the killer using a coarse bristled brush. She had numerous cuts all over her body, including several where large chunks of flesh had been completely removed. She'd been severely beaten. There were numerous bruises all over her face and elsewhere, as well as multiple gashes across her forehead. One of the few signs of blood surrounding the corpse was the amount that had matted in her thick black hair. Aside from the severing of her torso, perhaps the most notable mutilation the killer had committed upon the victim's body, was that he had slashed the corners of her mouth from ear to ear. This was something that was popularly known as a Glasgow smile, because the practice is said to have been originated by English street gangs in Glasgow, Scotland back during the 1920s. It was evident that whoever had committed this heinous crime had gone out of their way to create a public spectacle. The grass beneath the body was still wet with dew, suggesting it had been placed there just before dawn. The pieces of the woman's corpse had been carefully arranged and positioned. The lower half of her body had been laid out a foot away from the top half, and her intestines had been carefully tucked beneath the woman's buttocks. The body had been posed, with her hands raised over her head her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs splayed open. The cause of death would later be determined as severe hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face, along with the shock from the blows to her head. Whoever this young woman was, she had been put through hell during the last hours of her life. Depressed ridges surrounding the wrists suggested she had been hung up by ropes and tortured. Medical examiners believe many of the worst mutilations had been done post-mortem but not all. There was evidence she'd been raped, although tests for sperm later came back negative. The Los Angeles police were quite used to homicide cases by that point in time. There was an average of one killing every two to three days. The department investigated 131 murders in 1946 and 119 in 1947. But of all those murders, this one was something unique. As the case developed a combination of several shocking twists and turns, along with a hungry media looking to capitalize on a sensational crime, would turn this into one of the most famous unsolved murder mysteries in history, and would make the young victim a household name. The victim's name was Elizabeth Short, but we all know her best as the Black Dahlia. I'm Nate Hale, and I like to wear black because it's slimming. And this is The Conspirators. The first problem the Los Angeles police investigators faced was identifying the victim. She was initially entered into the system as a Jane Doe. The woman's fingerprints didn't match any in the police or sheriff's department's files. The homicide detectives assigned to the case planned on airmailing the woman's prints to the FBI in Washington. But major storms throughout the Midwest had grounded all air travel. Police detectives went to the offices of the Los Angeles Examiner hoping to score a copy of a drawing of the young woman a staff artist had made. Since all the photos taken of the woman's body were too horrific to be shared publicly. It was Warden Woolard, the paper's assistant managing editor, 
who offered a much quicker solution to the detective's problem in getting the fingerprints to the FBI in Washington. The examiner could transmit the prints directly to the FBI using a new device known as a sound photo, an early precursor to the fax machine. They could send the prints immediately and have an answer back from the feds in just a few hours, rather than a few days or weeks. The first transmission of the prints over the telephone lines failed. The prints were too blurry and indistinct. A second attempt was made by greatly enlarging each print and sending them individually. This proved to be a success and gave the detectives the first break they had been looking for, the woman's name and identity. She was 22-year-old Elizabeth Short from Medford, Massachusetts. Her fingerprints had been on file from a few years earlier when she'd been arrested for underage drinking with some soldiers in a restaurant in Mission Valley. Her fingerprints were also on file because she'd briefly held a government job as a clerk at the U.S. Army's Camp Cook in Lompoc, California. What struck everyone at first was what a beautiful girl she had been. Elizabeth's mugshot showed a startlingly pretty pale-complected face with an upturned nose, piercing light-colored eyes, and of course her signature hennaed mane of black hair. It was because she had been such a looker in life, as well as the gruesome details of her death, that the competing Los Angeles newspapers immediately went into a feeding frenzy for information about the case. Immediately after learning Elizabeth Short's name, the examiner assigned a reporter named Wayne Sutton to contact Short's mother, Phoebe May Short, back in Medford, Massachusetts, to get the scoop on her daughter. Sutton was instructed to tread carefully, considering the woman probably had no idea at that point her daughter had been murdered. Sutton proceeded to phone Phoebe May under the guise that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest. Phoebe was delighted to hear the news about her baby girl. The proud mother was more than happy to tell Sutton all she could about Elizabeth's childhood. It was only after Sutton had scribbled down everything he needed that he dropped the hammer and told her what had really happened to Elizabeth. Elizabeth Short was the third of five girls, born into a working-class Boston-area family. After losing most of his savings in the stock market crash of 1929, Short's father was believed to have committed suicide. Leaving Short's mother to raise the five children by herself, Throughout childhood, Elizabeth was troubled by asthma and bronchitis. She underwent lung surgery at age 15, after which doctors told her mother she'd do better in a warm climate. Short's mother then sent Elizabeth to spend her remaining years of high school living with family friends in Miami, Florida, but Elizabeth dropped out in her sophomore year. In 1942, Elizabeth's mother was shocked when she received a letter from her presumably dead husband. He'd actually started a new life in California, Elizabeth relocated to Vallejo, California to live with him. It was during this time that Elizabeth worked briefly at Camp Cook and within about a year was arrested for underage drinking with some servicemen. After her arrest, police sent her back to Medford, Massachusetts, but instead she returned to Florida, making only infrequent trips back to Massachusetts. In Florida, she met Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. Elizabeth began telling friends that her new beau had proposed to her in a letter and they were to marry upon his return from the war. But the Major died after his plane was shot down in 1945, just a week before Japan's surrender. This news devastated Elizabeth. After that, Elizabeth Short relocated once again to Los Angeles in July 1946. 
where she apparently spent the last six months of her life living a mostly transient existence, bouncing from one address to the next. Although at first, reporters were quick to paint Elizabeth as an innocent young starlet who had come to L.A. with dreams of making it big in Hollywood, in the weeks following her body's discovery, so too did a new image begin to emerge about Elizabeth Short. People who knew her described her as chronically shiftless, someone who rarely worked, and who relied on a string of young men and roommates who felt sorry for her in order to live. While it was clear Short had not been a prostitute, she was apparently a perpetual tease. Detectives were able to find at least 50 men who knew her before her death, most of whom shared a very similar stories of Elizabeth as a chiseler who latched onto them in exchange for food, money, and shelter. Although everyone the police interviewed also said that Elizabeth always refused to have sex with them, usually by claiming she was either a virgin, engaged, or married. There are differing reports exactly how the Black Dahlia came by her legendary nickname. One prevailing version says that reporters interviewed a local pharmacist who had served Elizabeth on several occasions at one of L.A.'s local hangouts for wannabe starlets to be discovered. The clerk was struck by Elizabeth's distinctive style and striking good looks. Every time he saw her, she was dressed in all black from head to toe, which, along with her distinctive black hair, would cause a reporter to dub her with the moniker The Black Dahlia, after a popular film noir starring Veronica Lake called The Blue Dahlia. Floral nicknames were all the rage in true crime stories back in the day. The Los Angeles press had already published sensational stories about the Red Hibiscus killing and the White Gardenia murder. But it was the name the Black Dahlia that would have the most indelible impact on L.A. history. Despite the sleazy and sensationalistic nature of much of the reporting that was being done around then, Los Angeles also had its surprisingly prudish side. Hollywood was constantly under attack by the moral majority for promoting sex and loose morals. Newspapers often printed stories warning people about the droves of sex-starved young harlots wandering the streets of L.A., looking to seduce innocent young men and drive them into the acts of debauchery. The Black Dahlia would be held up as the poster child for such sin. Even though in reality it doesn't look like Elizabeth Short was promiscuous at all. One of the very first promising suspects the police detained was Robert Red Manley, who police discovered may have been the last person to see Elizabeth Short alive. It was a reporter named Jimmy Richardson who caught a hot tip regarding a motel in Pacific Beach where Elizabeth Short had briefly stayed with a mysterious man, known only at that point as Red. From there, they were able to get the license number of the vehicle registered to the room the Black Dahlia stayed in. A 1939 Studebaker Coupe registered to a 25-year-old pipe clamp salesman and former Army musician named Robert Manley, who went by the nickname Red. When police finally learned about the mysterious Mr. Manley, they arrested him on Sunday, January 19th, while he was on a return trip from his boss's house in Eagle Rock. Detectives at the Hollenbeck Police Station questioned Red Manley all night. According to Red, he and his wife had just had a baby, and fatherhood was proving to be too much for him to handle. So he began heading out at night looking for girls. On December 16, 1946, Red Manley bumped into Elizabeth Short for the first time when he spotted her on a San Diego street corner and stopped to engage her in conversation. He asked the pretty, pale-skinned girl if she wanted a ride. She told him she'd like him to take her home. Red insisted nothing too unseemly happened between them, 
He just drove her around the city for a little while and, in his own words, kissed her a couple times, but she was kind of cold. He ended up dropping her off where she asked. A few weeks later, he had to make another business trip to San Diego in January 1947. So he sent Elizabeth a telegram and asked her to meet him. But she never showed at the requested meeting place, so he went to the house where she'd been staying with a family named French. Elizabeth was still living there, and she asked Red if he would drive her to Los Angeles. They left the French home that evening and checked into a motel in Pacific Beach. They spent the night dancing at the Hacienda Club in Mission Valley. Elizabeth was so happy and wild on the dance floor, Red was sure he was going to get lucky that night. Only when they returned to the motel room, Elizabeth turned sullen and withdrawn, and she asked him to leave her alone. The girl became so miserable to be around, Red admitted to police he was glad to get rid of her. After buying Elizabeth's short breakfast the next day and making a few business stops, the two of them made the long drive to Los Angeles. Red did mention to the detectives that during their time together, Elizabeth seemed constantly worried about something. During the drive to L.A., she'd often look around and stare nervously at some of the other cars on the road. But when Red asked her what was wrong, she didn't say. When they got to L.A., Elizabeth Short told Red Manley that she was going to meet her sister in the lobby of the downtown Biltmore Hotel, and that after that she intended to return to Boston. The last time Red Manley claimed to have seen Elizabeth Short was when he left her in the Biltmore's lobby at 6.30 p.m. that evening. According to other witnesses, Elizabeth Short remained in the Biltmore's lobby for several more hours after that. She made several telephone calls, then finally left the hotel through the Olive Street exit at around 10 p.m. The doorman said he saw her vanishing into the fog as she headed south on Olive. The next time anyone saw her was when she was found severed into two pieces in a vacant lot in Limert Park. Although police continued to investigate Red Manley thoroughly, it seems unlikely, although not completely out of the question, that he was Elizabeth Short's murderer. Red's wife provided his alibi for the night of January 14th, saying that he'd been with her all night. This was hardly an ironclad alibi, but considering forensics could find no traces of blood in Manley's vehicle, as well as witnesses who said they saw Manley leave Elizabeth in the Biltmore lobby, police were never able to build much of a case against him. One aspect that was looked at by police and widely reported in the Los Angeles media was that Short's murder may have been the work of a serial killer although that term wasn't really being used at the time. Knowing what we know now about psychopathic killers, it seems highly plausible that someone who could commit such a heinous and vicious crime as what they did to Elizabeth Short would have continued killing. The most common way this theoretical madman was being described in the papers was that of a werewolf killer. The idea being that this could be a seemingly normal individual with a sadistic violent streak no one else knew about. There were several high-profile murders around then of women that both police and news reporters examined to see if they might have been committed by the same person who killed the Black Dahlia. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
The so-called red hibiscus murder I mentioned earlier involved the death of a woman named Tullis Cook, who was found beaten to death with a blunt object in Lincoln Park in 1946. The white gardenia murder was that of 42-year-old Ora Murray, whose partially nude body was found on a West Los Angeles golf course in 1943. Whoever had killed her placed a white gardenia underneath her body. There was also the still-unsolved murder of 20-year-old oil heiress Georgette Bauerdorf, whose nude and strangled body was found in her bathtub in October 1944. There was even another popular theory that whoever killed the Black Dahlia might also have been the same individual who left the dismembered torsos of several homeless people throughout the city of Cleveland during the mid-1930s. One of the most promising cases that was initially believed could be related to the Black Dahlia murder was that of Jean French, whose nude and badly beaten body was found on February 10, 1947. Whoever had killed her had written on her stomach and lipstick an expletive, followed by what appeared to be the letters BD and the letters TEX beneath that. The Los Angeles Herald-Examiner pounced on the idea that the letters BD stood for Black Dahlia, although it's commonly believed now those letters may have actually been PD, short for Police Department. But although all the investigators looked closely at these cases and several others to see if there might be a connection to the Black Dahlia murder, none could be found. The next major development in the case occurred on January 21, 1947. That was when a person claiming to be Short's killer phoned the office of the Los Angeles Examiner, editor James Richardson. The mysterious caller congratulated Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case and told him that he planned on eventually turning himself in. But first he wanted to toy with the police a little more. Before hanging up, the caller told Richardson he should expect to receive some souvenirs from the Black Dahlia in the mail. On January 24th, a U.S. Postal Service employee discovered a suspicious manila envelope that was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. Those words had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings. In addition, there was a large message on the outside of the envelope that said, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. The contents of the envelope had been thoroughly cleaned with gasoline. The envelope contained Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, and several names written on scraps of paper. One item that stood out from all the others was a black address book with a gold embossed name on the front cover. And it was a name that was already familiar to the police. It was the name Mark Hansen, a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner. He was believed by many in the police department to be involved in some shady dealings, and would become a major suspect in the murder of Elizabeth Short, but we'll get back to Hansen in a bit. Despite the efforts by whoever left the envelope to clean its contents, police were able to lift several partial fingerprints from the envelope and send them to the FBI for testing. But somehow the prints became compromised in transit and were never able to be properly examined. But leaving fingerprints didn't appear to be the only mistake the killer made. That same day, a maintenance worker discovered two more items discarded in a trash can just two miles from where Short's body had been found. It was a woman's handbag and a black suede shoe. Unlike the envelope, it appeared these items were never meant to be found. Although they too had been cleaned with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. Once news of the Black Dahlia murder broke... Police were inundated with hundreds of phone calls and individuals walking voluntarily into police stations wanting to confess to the crime. 
police were forced to investigate each of these tips, although none of them seemed to lead anywhere. On January 26th, another letter was sent to the examiner. Only this time the letter was handwritten. It read, Here it is, turning in wed, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. The letter was signed, The Black Dahlia Avenger. The letter also contained a location where the supposed killer planned on turning himself in, although when police staked out the area at the appointed time, no one showed. Then at 1 p.m. the same day, the examiner received another letter with cut-and-pasted letters that said, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. After that, the L.A. examiner would continue to receive several other letters from someone claiming to be the killer, but none of these offered any more useful clues or information. It's difficult to tell how many of them, if any, were authentic, or if they were all simply hoaxes or the work of crackpots. On March 14th, an apparent suicide note was found tucked inside a shoe among a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge near Venice Beach. The note read, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out. I couldn't help myself for that, or this. Sorry, Mary. But although police investigated this lead thoroughly, they never found the body of a matching suicide victim, nor were they ever able to identify the clothing's owner. This was a case where the police were never lacking for suspects. Hundreds of people phoned in or even turned themselves in voluntarily confessing to the crime. Of all these confessions, few, if any, stood up to any sort of scrutiny, though. Over the years, dozens of potential suspects have been put forth by police and amateur investigators alike. There's no way I could possibly cover them all, so I'll just focus on the ones I think are the most promising. Back around 2000, former Los Angeles police detective Steve Hodell was sorting through his late father George Hodell's belongings when he came across something odd. In life, George Hodell had been a wealthy doctor who hobnobbed among Hollywood's elite. Steve's relationship with his father had been strained since childhood after George Hodel abandoned his wife and children and moved to the Philippines. As Steve sorted through his father's things, he came across a small photo album tucked away inside a box. The album contained the usual assorted collection of family photographs of Steve, his mother, and siblings, along with several surrealist photographs taken by the legendary photographer Man Ray, a close family friend. But there, in the back of the album... Steve also came across two photographs of an unidentified woman with dark hair and her eyes downcast. The first thought that crossed Steve Hodell's mind was that the woman in the photograph looked remarkably like the Black Dahlia. Being a homicide detective with 23 years with the Los Angeles Police Department put Steve Hodell in a unique position to investigate the murder. Steve studied forensic records and crime scene photographs from 1947 and learned that Short had been given a hemicorporectomy a procedure that bisects the body between the lumbar spine. This is the only spot on the human body where the spine can be cut in two without breaking bone. This convinced Steve that only someone with advanced medical training could have committed such a crime. Someone, perhaps, like his own father. As Steve continued investigating, he found several other connections to his father as well. For example, Steve claimed that the handwritten letters signed the Black Dahlia Avenger bore many striking similarities to samples of his own father's handwriting. It turns out Steve wasn't alone in the belief George was a viable suspect in the murder of Elizabeth Short either. Police detectives back in 1947 also looked at him as a suspect, although he was never charged with the crime. 
nor was it even the first time he was accused of murder. George Hodel first came under suspicion of murder in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, who died of a drug overdose in 1945. Hodel was suspected of killing her to cover up a financial fraud, but police were never able to charge him with that crime either. Then in late 1949, Hodel's teenage daughter Tamar accused him of incest and impregnating her, then forcing her to have an illicit abortion. Once again, though, George Hodel managed to skate free of those charges. But because George had become a suspect in a sex crime, he soon caught the attention of Los Angeles police investigators as a potential suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. A few witnesses came forward claiming first-hand knowledge of a 1946 relationship between Elizabeth Short and George Hodel. Even his daughter Tamar testified in the witness stand that George may have had something to do with the Black Dahlia killing. In 2003, Steve Hodel found a long-lost file all about his father in a vault at the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. It turns out George Hodel's Frank Lloyd Wright Hollywood Mansion was bugged by a joint district attorney-LAPD task force during which conversations were recorded in which George revealed that he had performed illicit abortions and made payoffs to several law enforcement officials. Probably the most damning moment of all came when George Hodel was caught on tape saying, Suppose I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Soon after that, George Hodel abandoned his wife and children and fled to the Philippines. No charges were ever brought against him in the murder of Elizabeth Short. He died in San Francisco in 1999. At first glance, George Hodel makes a compelling suspect. He was no doubt a horrible excuse for a human being. But at the same time, much of the case Steve Hodel built against his father remains purely circumstantial. There were a few witnesses who claimed George Hodel may have personally known Elizabeth Short, Yet, there were also plenty of others who claimed George Hodel never knew the Black Dahlia at all. Steve Hodel wrote multiple books on the case, and in them he went on to further extrapolate that his father may have been responsible for a number of other high-profile murders, including being none other than the Zodiac Killer, the other most famous unsolved crime in California history. Personally, I think one major misstep Steve Hodel made from the very beginning was thinking the unidentified woman in his father's photo album was Elizabeth Short. I've looked at the photo, and I don't see much of a resemblance there at all. Mind you, if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said George Hodel was the most promising suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. But then in 2018, British author Pew Eatwell published her own book, Black Dahlia Red Rose. And in it, she lays out what I believe is the most compelling case for not only who killed Elizabeth Short, but where, how, and why they did it as well. It all goes back to Mark Hansen. You may recall that Hansen's name was the one that was embossed on the front cover of the address book The Killer Left Behind, along with several of Elizabeth Short's other possessions. Along with owning a popular L.A. nightclub and theater, there were also many credible accusations that Hansen was involved in organized crime, and that he was a major player in the local drug and prostitution trade. At the height of the Black Dahlia investigation, over 750 officers from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case, including 400 sheriff's deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis even posted a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. 
One thing this also meant was that there were also often several competing investigations going on at the same time, sometimes within the same police department. Officially, the lead detectives on the Black Dahlia case were Homicide Squad Detectives Harry Hansen and his partner, Finus Brown. But at one point during the investigation, the Los Angeles Police Gangster Squad was assigned the case as well. During their investigation, the Gangster Squad caught wind of Leslie Duane Dillon, a former bellhop and mortician's assistant, who sent a letter to the LAPD under the pseudonym Jack Sand. This letter ended up in the hands of the LAPD's police psychiatrist, Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver. This was back during the time when dozens of confession letters were still pouring into the police department each day. It was Dr. DeRiver's job to read each one of them. This letter in particular stuck Dr. DeRiver as particularly unusual, though, because the letter writer seemed to know things about the crime that weren't widely public knowledge outside the police department. In the letter, Dylan blamed the killing on an acquaintance named Jeff Connors. He said that Connors killed Elizabeth Short as an act of revenge to cover up an affair. At first, Dr. DeRiver thought Jeff Connors was a figment of Dylan's imagination, but he turned out to be real. Although once police tracked the real Jeff Connors down, he offered several conflicting statements about the crime and his connection to Elizabeth Short. Detectives from the gangster squad were able to determine a connection between Leslie Dillon and Mark Hansen. In fact, it appears that Dillon served as Mark Hansen's bagman for a number of illicit activities. Over time, detectives were able to convince Leslie Dillon to be interviewed by Dr. DeRiver. And it's because of these interviews that DeRiver became convinced Dillon was Elizabeth Short's killer. Over time, detectives were able to convince Leslie Dillon to be interviewed by Dr. DeRiver. And it's because of these interviews that DeRiver became convinced Dillon was Elizabeth Short's killer. Dylan knew many gruesome and graphic details about the crime that had never been revealed to the public. This included the fact that among the pieces of flesh that had been removed from Elizabeth Short's body was a patch of skin on her leg that had contained a tattoo of a rose. Dylan not only knew about the rose tattoo, but he openly speculated that whoever killed Elizabeth Short had probably flushed the chunk of flesh down the toilet. Gangster squad detectives also received a hot tip regarding the possible murder location. On the very same day Elizabeth Short's body was found, several witnesses at the Astor Motel reported finding a room drenched with blood. Some of those same witnesses later testified that they saw a woman in the very same room days prior, looking drugged and disheveled, but bore a striking resemblance to Elizabeth Short. Suspiciously, the motel's owners cleaned the room thoroughly and burned the records of who actually rented the room. Not only that, but despite seeing the news everywhere about the Black Dahlia murder, the owners never reported discovering a blood-drenched crime scene to the police. At the same time, despite the owners' attempts to cover things up, records showed that the Astor Motel had the largest cleaning bill in its history that month. Now, admittedly, there were some witnesses who placed Leslie Dillon in San Francisco at the time of Elizabeth Short's murder. But Pew Eatwell points out how unreliable each of them were. If we are to believe the story as she describes it, Mark Hansen met Elizabeth Short in the months prior to her murder and became obsessed with her. He had girls all over the city, but something about Elizabeth Short in particular captivated him. He allowed Elizabeth to stay in some of his properties and gave her money to live, but despite this, she steadfastly refused his advances. Hansen eventually grew tired of Short's behavior, so he turned to his bagman, Leslie Dillon, and told him to, quote, 
get rid of her. That's actually a pretty broad statement, one that's wide open to interpretation. It's quite possible Hansen had no idea that Dylan was a closet psychopath. One who took Hansen's request, literally. Neither Leslie Dillon nor Mark Hansen were ever charged in the murders. A grand jury inquest ultimately declared there wasn't enough evidence to press charges. Pew Eatwell suspects there may have been a police cover-up going on to protect the men. In the middle of their investigation, the gangster squad was abruptly pulled off the Elizabeth Short investigation and instructed to no longer follow any leads regarding the Astor Motel. Eatwell thinks this cover-up may have involved police corruption inside the Vice Squad, who would have been well acquainted with Mark Hansen's alleged illicit activities. Eatwell also writes that one of the lead investigators in the case, Detective Finest Brown, may have been on Hansen's payroll, and that his partner, Harry Hansen, helped cover up his involvement. One other detail about the murder of Elizabeth Short that was not released to the public was that the killer had carved two letters into Short's skin, letters E and D. Pew Eatwell speculates these could have been initials, E for Elizabeth and D for Dylan. Although Eatwell puts forth what I think is the most plausible solution to Elizabeth Short's murder, in truth we'll never know what really happened. By now, Leslie Dillon and most of the other major players and suspects in the case, including Mark Hansen, are deceased. A lot of the evidence collected by police has either vanished or been destroyed as well. At one point, Leslie Dillon filed a $100,000 lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles for his treatment by investigators. Although the suit would be dropped when it was revealed Dillon was wanted by Santa Monica police for his involvement in robbing a hotel while working as a bellhop there. After he was released from police custody in 1949, Leslie Dillon mostly dropped from the public eye. He spent the rest of his life living under the name Jack, right up until his death in San Francisco in 1988. Was Leslie Dillon Elizabeth Short's murderer? It's impossible to say with absolute certainty. Dr. DeRiver and several detectives within the Los Angeles Police Gangster Squad certainly believe so. But ultimately, they were unable to prove their case beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is one curious thing you should probably know about Leslie Dillon, though. One small detail about the man's life that might speak volumes about his guilt. You see, following his release from police custody, Leslie Dillon went on to get married and start a family. This included having a daughter. A daughter, Leslie Dillon named Elizabeth. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. If you're looking for more information on the Black Dahlia murder, then I strongly recommend you check out Pew Eatwell's book, Black Dahlia Red Rose. It's a fantastic, eye-opening read, and there are so many more compelling details the author gets into about this legendary crime that I couldn't possibly cover them all in the time we have together. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Eddie, Rita, Cassandra, Teal, and Vegard. Your generosity blows me away. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on most of your other favorite podcast apps. If you're looking for us on social media, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Thanks again for listening, 
and I hope you'll join us again next time.